Carrie Ciccone, and I'm here with the Hyper Gallery Podcast. Today we're talking with artist Terry Pastor, whose fame rose in the music industry due to his album sleeves for David Bowie. Today we're going to ask him to discuss Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars album cover, or album sleeve if you're in the UK. Hi, Terry. Hi, hi, Terry. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about how this all transpired, please? Uh, well, the Ziggy cover, yeah, it was a case of I'd done the, the cover for Hunky Dory for David, and we were obviously pleased with that. And then uh, suddenly a package arrived in the studio when I was at the studio in Covent Garden, and it was these two photographs, which eventually became Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and it was the front cover shot, just in black and white, very grainy black and white photograph and a black and white photograph of David in a phone box and just with a written sort of direction just saying the front cover was going to be David in the street and the back cover was going to be the phone box and the title was going to be David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and just colour it up the same way that I've done the Hunky Dory cover. So again there was no real art direction other than that what I originally just said about what they wanted to do in the sense of the titling. And that was it, really. And I thought, well, yeah, I suppose on the back cover, all the sleeve notes and musician credits and everything, I letter-set it in wine, letter-set straight onto the artwork, which is a crazy way to do it. But, you know, that was just the way I worked. And uh, so that was the only other information was all the cover notes I had to put on as well. But that, that was it, really. And uh, yeah, I, so it was just a case of getting on with it. And I had no art direction, as I say, and no no idea about the colour of his clothes or anything. So I just thought the reason he's got this turquoise a sort of jumpsuit thing on is because I thought turquoise stood out as a colour against the background. That was the only reason I did it. And if, in fact, if, if maybe they'd have said we want the same colour as the actual suit, it was actually rather a dull sort of grey, bluey, greeny colour, and I don't think that would have stood out quite so well. And also his hair at that time actually wasn't that blonde at all. It was actually more of a mousy colour. Um, but I think because it was highlighted from the light, you know, above his head, and it, it was quite bleached out in the photograph, so I just did it in like a mid, mid-witch cuckoo sort of yellow, which again made him stand out very well. And uh, yeah, so it was all very arbitrary, sort of choice of colouring, but it, it seemed to work. So that was fine. And the same with the back, the back cover. I just did the turquoise suit and I just thought it, it stood out well against fairly dark background. And yeah, and obviously David liked it. So uh, that was fine. Well, also going back to lettering and stuff, the title, I did it on separate artwork as airbrush. The words David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust were, were airbrushed artwork, which again, at the printing process, was placed in the position on the artwork. So it was it was actually a separate piece just on, on artboard. Um, and I remember one thing always made me laugh. I, I took the artwork when it was finished to Tony DeFries, his manager at the time, and I said, oh, here's the artwork. He said, oh, great. And I said, oh, when do I get paid? And he turned to his colleague and said, you hold him and I'll hit him. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of very rock and roll manager. Yeah. Sort of. Anyway, you know, that was that. But on the other thing, going back to Ziggy, I remember I was, you know, it was about eight o'clock in the evening and it was January, it was wet and dull. 
as the fact that the, the artwork was wet and dull because it was photographed in the same period, maybe a week before I did the colouring. And David phoned me up at about eight in the evening, just how's it going? And I said, oh, I've finished the front, I'm working on the back cover. And, and he was very surprised and said, oh, there's a back cover, what is it? I said, it's you in a phone box. And he said, oh, I didn't know they were using a back cover, brilliant, okay, I can't wait to see it. So that was again, an indication that he had not a lot of influence on art direction particularly at that time. But I, I suspect when he became, you know, very famous and had more control over things, he probably had more input himself onto his covers, I'm sure. Absolutely. And one would presume because he was so style conscious and he was so he's an artist and visual artist to some degree himself that he would have had more input, but he didn't. Yeah, I think I think that was probably the case. I mean, he was always very theatrical, Dave. I mean, he used to come and drop into the studio with Andrew's wife then, and he'd always be sort of doing dance moves and stuff. You know, we said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Oh, I'm trucking." We said, "Okay." <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. So that was yeah. So David was always into that sort of thing, I guess. And by the time Ziggy came out, he'd really sort of created this sort of this whole image, which, you know, previously when I'd seen him, you know, bump into him in the West End occasionally and whatever, he looked fairly, well, I mean, normal isn't the right word, but he, he, he didn't particularly stand out from the crowd. And he dressed, you know, a bit hippie-ish, but not, not extreme at all. And, well, in fact, I, I'd, I'd have a drink with him in the pub next to the studio and he'd go totally unnoticed. And this was obviously before Ziggy was released. But he, he was just, you know, just no one noticed him at all. But I, I'm sure that after the, you know, the release of that album, it would have been very different. I'm sure if he went into the same pub a few months later, he'd have got mobbed. Probably. Right. Because he's obviously one of the fathers of glam metal. And, I mean, glam, sorry, glam rock. Sorry. And yeah. he's, he you know, started with the makeup and the hair and, and everything that... Yeah came from that the punk movement later on and yeah it was so influential his Ziggy's character yeah he really was I mean yeah I think the fact you know like the Andy Warhol track and he was obviously he was always into that sort of thing and I mean I think that later in his life he painted himself so he, he, he liked art anyway and uh, yeah so yeah he was always obviously obviously into that that whole thing and, and that's why I think that certainly in his later record covers he would have had far more input into how they were going to be, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. I just want to make one comment on your earlier remark about doing the covers in letters set, which for the uninitiated people that hear this, they may not be aware that it's like the analog version of, of typeface, like we, which now you would do obviously digitally. But can you just tell, tell us briefly what, that entails a yeah. using letter set. Yeah, well, letter set, it was just a, a rubbed down transfer and it was like, it came in a, an A4 sheet, I think roughly, maybe a bit bigger. And with, with the whole alphabet, normally upper and lower case plus exclamation marks and full stops and, well, you know, everything you'd need for setting type. And you would sort of place it onto your work, onto your work, and you'd just get a a pencil or something and, and, and rub each letter down. I mean, it was a bit tedious, particularly doing all the sleeve notes on the back of Ziggy. It's a lot to do, but it, yeah, it was, you know, it was a, quite a practical way of doing it. And you did have control over it, I suppose, as opposed to going to a typesetter and getting it done, which is probably the way it should have been done 
but you know, no one complained. It looked okay, and uh, yeah, and uh, anyway, it's something that they sort of. I think it, I think it still exists, but it's not something that's used much now. But it was used a lot in the late sixties and seventies, an awful lot. I remember when I first started working at a Fleet Street art studio in '62. They had a whole studio full of guys that did lettering. That's all they did. And someone would say, oh, I want such and such and such in Gary, Garryman Bold, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like I don't know, 15 point. And they paint it perfectly, you know? Wow. And then, and then Letraset came out and they were all out of work. Jeez. Well, Letraset is yeah. quite fiddly too. If, if, you don't, if you're not yeah. used to using it, it can be quite... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's sad that these guys have gone through like a, an apprenticeship of learning every typeface you can imagine and being able to just sort of like knock out a piece of lettering perfectly in a specific typeface. And, and all that training went for nothing because letters happened. But then you could say the same thing with, you know, airbrushing maybe. When computers came out, suddenly who needs to do it with the airbrush? You could do it in Photoshop with the airbrush tool. Admittedly, I say that the computer is the plus side of the computer is it's very editable and it's very, very clean. Whereas hand done airbrushing looks hand done, but that is quite nice really that you have that sort of feel about things. I mean, my son always says to me, oh, I don't do it in the computer, dad, do it with the airbrush. It's got more feel. Wow. But of course, doing with the airbrush is, is very fiddly compared to doing it on the computer. Yeah, but it's it's one of those skills that, you know, it, it may die out if it's, if it's not, you know, utilized. So it's kind of good that he wants to keep it yeah. going. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he loves that sort of, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's weird with the airbrush. It's the fact that if you go onto the internet and you look for airbrush stuff, it's all like nail art and hobbyists. Right. There's no illustrators using it anymore it's it's like it's excuse me it's like a sort of a dead art now nearly i mean strangely though going back to or relating the airbrush and bowie a lot of work that i have done in the recent past for record covers has been related directly to david bowie they said oh you're the guy that did the david bowie covers we want you to do the same thing on our cover to color up photographs but it's only taken 40 years for that to happen do you want to name some of the bands that you've worked with? Well, I've recently done the record cover for Arcade Fire. Okay. Uh, wow. And they they had worked with Bowie evidently years back and were big fans of his and said, oh, yeah, we, we, we love those covers. And as you're the artist that did stuff for David, we want you to do this for us. So that was nice. And it's also I did another cover for Ginger Wildheart called... 500% I think it was called and again he wanted me to, although that was more artwork I must admit rather than more airbrush stuff but he wanted to use me because of the Bowie covers he was a big fan of David Bowie and he obviously felt there was some sort of link there between me Bowie and him so anyway so it's just weird how you know through the years it it's now become the people more interested in it whereas I think it, again rewinding now to the time that the records were current in the 70s, I never put those artworks in my portfolio because right. I, felt, I felt that as they were like unusual for me to do, just colored up photographs, not 
full blown airbrush illustration. I didn't think they were indicative of what I normally did, so I didn't want to put them in. And and it it and, and it, it wouldn't have been noticed that they weren't in there at that time. But in the last, say, maybe I, I guess ten years or maybe twelve years, those covers have become really iconic. For what reason I don't really know, but they have. Which is interesting because if someone has said to me while I was doing them, do you know in forty years from now they're going to be really popular images, and I wouldn't have believed them. And I wouldn't understand why. And I still don't really, I mean, I understand why because Bowie is such an, an enigmatic sort of performer. I can understand that. But I think from the, but it is because of him. It's not really my artwork as such. It's that, it's, it's, it's a symbiotic thing going on there, I guess. But it's really, it's, it's his popularity. And interestingly, a lot of people that buy prints that I've done of Bowie, they were all around about 12 to 15 years old when Bowie happened. So that was, that was their period for music, which of course wasn't mine. As I said right. earlier, my, my period was going back to rhythm and blues and Chuck Berry and stuff really. So I was sort of set in my ways in a sense. I was very old school, even then. I just have two more questions. Well, one, can you talk a little bit about the fact that Bowie saw you wearing a jacket and he had to have the same jacket? Oh, yeah. So you were a bit yeah. of a style icon yourself. Okay. <laughs> that, I don't think so, but uh, I just, I had a, a big Honda 750 back then and I had a, a, a friend, friend of mine, a girlfriend, a friend of mine called Julia Burgess was great at doing applique work on material. And I said, oh, could she make me a, a jacket? A, it was like a bomber jacket. And just with main artery on the back, all applique. It's a beautiful job. And then David saw it and said, oh, where'd you get that jacket? And he phoned up Julia and, and she made him a jacket, but I never saw it. I didn't know what she'd made for him. But, but anyway, so in a weird sort of way, because I'm, I'm totally, complete, you know, non-fashionable person in that sense. I'm rather amazed that um, David Bowie wanted to have something made that I was wearing. <laughs> Do you bizarre. still have it? Do you still have oh, it? Yeah. yeah, I still have it. Yeah, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, I, well, I have to, I've, got, I've got it in a frame in the studio. I, I mean, later on, I'll do a little bit of mobile footage and, and put it on, on the screen. Oh, thank you. That, and speaking of fashion, before I let you go, you were hired by one of the biggest luxury fashion brands in the world, Gucci. Can you just yeah. tell us how that came about? Well, again, that was actually, yeah, you, you say that, the coincidence there is the fact it was the same thing with the Bowie covers that um, the photographer phoned me up and said, oh, you did these Bowie covers. We want these black and white photographs, fashion photographs for Gucci, hand-coloured with the airbrush. So they didn't want it done on the computer. It had to be hand-done. So it had the same sort of vague feel as the stuff I'd done for David. And uh, so that's how that came about, the connection then with David Bowie again, which is quite remarkable. Well, I think the Gucci images that you've done are absolutely stunning. And uh, oh, thank you. Oh my gosh! And they're so memorable because they are so different than the normal. I guess it was about what 2017, 2018, 2019. What did you do? Yeah, yeah, about three years ago, four years ago, maybe I can't remember quite. But I know it was a job that was well. I so say it was a weird job for me to do because again, I'm not really 
I don't, I'm not a follower of fashion, so, uh, you know, it was all sort of like, but it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was good. And as I say, it was just weird again that in the last sort of maybe three, four, five years, the Bowie stuff has really become a thing that people are picking up on. Which is quite weird when you think that, as I say, they were done that, that many years ago. And I've never considered myself a, a trend-setting artist, but for some reason, particularly those, those images have had that effect on people, which is remarkable, really. Absolutely. I would like to say the one good thing about streaming music services because there's such a debate about that, but you know, whether, you know, people, a lot of people are vinyl lovers, a lot of people, you know, don't believe in streaming services because of the fact the artist gets so little money, or some artists do. I think that streaming services has kept people like Bowie, Beatles, so on and so forth, in omnipresent to newer generations, like younger generations. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think well, it's just it's good that they do because, as I say, going going to back to my taste in music, that uh, you know, people are a little rigid, etc. There's still people, there's still people around that are younger that that will pick up on that. The fact, I mean, I can't believe they they wouldn't because if you listen to his best stuff, it's totally memorable. And and if you look at all the artists that people have admired later, like Bowie, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, they were all huge fans of Little Richard. So there's that sort of link there again between people that were sort of like, or musicians that were really happening in the 60s and 70s particularly, were still looking back at the guys that were around in the 50s and a big, big influence on them. And, and the one thing I find, I might be wrong, but I find now just listening or, or seeing maybe a lot of music that's happening now, I think a lot of, I mean, the groups or, you know, you know, guitar lineup sort of groups don't seem to exist now particularly. But a lot of younger singers or entertainers, performers now, I don't know if they really know where they're coming from. They've sort of lost that link between, you know, when rock and roll or popular music in the true sense of the word happened in the 50s. I'm not sure now that the people performing in, the, in 2022 really understand where that music originated. I might be wrong there, but that's the way I feel about it. Whereas the guys in the 60s and 70s, definitely knew where their influences were. And I'm not sure now if people do know where their influences are. I think you're right. I think that, that uh, the descendancy of these artists is maybe a little lost nowadays. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in a way that's good in the sense that it means music is changing, it, it's, it, it's evolving and it's not, it's not, you know, having to rely on several sort of like 12 bar beats and stuff. Which is fine, but I just think there's not that many musicians around or people around that I'd see on TV or whatever. Do you think, wow, you know, this, if this, this, this woman or this man is amazing. Most of them, you just think, well, I've heard that all before. And it's not, it's not memorable. But then that's the way the business school, I think, again, going back to maybe the 50s, I mean, I think probably, the, and the 60s as well. I think a lot of music that was made then they just said, we want to do this, let's just do it. You know, forget the accountants, forget making money, let's, you just want to do this. Whereas I think now, particularly, unless they see a hit, it's not done. You know, there has to be some sort of end product with some sort of generation of income, otherwise they don't want to do it. But I might be wrong there, but that's the way I feel. Because if you think back to a lot of music that was made in the 50s and 60s particularly, uh, you think it's very uncommercial. 
but it still sold well. Whereas now everything's just incredibly commercial. There's no, you know, I remember Jeff Beck making a great comment once. He said, I thought rock and roll was meant to be dangerous. What happened? True. Very true. Yeah. It's not anymore. No, no. Definitely not. It's gone soft. But, but then I don't think a lot of music now is rock and roll anyway. It's just pop music, which is, I'm going to say just. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it is just, it's not, it's not in your face anymore. You know, whereas, again, going back to Little Richard, for instance, I mean, you know, his best stuff, it was really in your face. And you, you couldn't sort of just say, well, it's all right. You'd have to say, well, that's really, you know, it hit me between the eyes there. And, and music doesn't do that anymore. Well, maybe it does, but I don't, I haven't seen any of it. I, or maybe I'm, I'm looking at the wrong programs or not listening to the right radio stations, but I don't really hear much stuff that it pricks my ears up. And I go, oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And yeah. a lot of it's electronic now, so it's, mm. it's different as well. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And I guess we're going to say goodbye now, but um, thank you so much for a really interesting chat on behalf of the Hyper Gallery. And uh, Terry, we look forward to uh, maybe speaking to you when, uh, again sometime. But in the meantime, thank you so much for your- Okay, well, thanks very much. My pleasure. It was great. Thanks. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye, Terry. Bye, Bye. everybody. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Thank you, Terry. I hope you will come back and do more for us. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the Art of the Album podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Goodbye.